Previously on Flying the Line, despite similar backgrounds, Republicans Teddy Roosevelt and George Bush draw drastically different conclusions about the need to support America's workers. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. ALPA supports its pilots through a variety of resources, including the official ALPA app. Download the app for the latest news, easy access to KCM locations, jump seat information, news from your LEC and MEC, and more. It's even got the orange card and an e-version of your member ID. Visit alpha.org apps to download, or search Alpa app in your smartphone's app store. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book Flying the Line, Volume 2, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 12, Pilots and Packs, Republicans and Labor, The Reagan Revolution Hits Alpa, Part 2. Title 2, The Pilots' Amendment of the Railway Labor Act, is one of the most significant, far-reaching pieces of legislation in Alpa's history, in the sense that every pilot flying the line lives with it on a daily basis. Dave Benke won the RLA's passage by adopting a cold-eyed view of politics. Can airline pilots in the next century learn anything from him? Benke was a child of the 1920s. He bought the whole Republican worldview. He believed the conventional wisdom of the day, which preached the values of individualism and hard work. He scratched his way up from obscurity, founded his own business, went broke, and came up swinging again. Benke was the living embodiment of the Republican ethos in the 1920s. But Benke wasn't stupid. After repeated bashings by the corporate power structure that Teddy Roosevelt had failed to tame, he reached the conclusion that labor unions provided the simple justice that workers needed. So he became a trade unionist, learning his lessons at the elbows of giants of the old labor movement, people like William Green of the American Federation of Labor, who guided Benke as he formed ALPA. And Green had learned from legendary activists like Samuel Gompers, the patron saint of 19th century unionism. In a nutshell, labor leaders of the old American Federation of Labor understood that without friends in politics, organized labor's position was almost hopeless. Gompers argued for pure and simple unionism, but he also taught another cardinal lesson reward your friends, and punish your enemies. What do Banky or Gompers have to say to contemporary airline pilots whose unionized jobs involve a technology that neither could have imagined? Banky surprised many pilots by taking Alpa into the political thicket during the 1930s. Banky declared himself a strong Roosevelt man. He would often say that had it not been for Teddy, things would be pretty grim. But Benke also said, it doesn't matter where the coal comes from, so long as it gets on the fire. What Benke meant can be seen clearly in his friendships with politicians of both parties. 
Benke understood that unions need friends in politics, but by the 1930s, his fellow pilots were becoming skeptical. Benke aligned with Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal at a time when many airline pilots were beginning to think of themselves as professionals who belonged in the GOP alongside doctors and lawyers. Owing to the high economic status that Alpa's successes had won them, many airline pilots began to lose sight of their roots in organized labor. They flirted with a conservatism that was more emotional than practical. They forgot that most fundamental Machiavellian motto, my enemy's friend is my enemy. Political parties, like nations, have no permanent friends, only shifting interests. When the interests change, so do the friends. ALPA had repeatedly relied on its friends in politics to secure its goals. In practice, this meant that ALPA's friends were Democrats, because that party had served the labor movement's interests. But it didn't have to be that way. In the scary world of deregulation, a time of turmoil and change that ALPA's founders could scarcely have imagined, political alliances may well prove as crucial as they were in Benke's day. Because organized labor's friends have mostly been Democrats, and because ALPA depends so heavily on its friends in organized labor, it stands to reason that airline pilots should be practical Democrats. The awful truth is that if a Democratic president had been in the White House instead of George Bush, the Eastern Bill that Congress passed in 1989 would almost certainly not have been vetoed. Under the heat of a presidential emergency board, Lorenzo would likely have suffered the kind of damage that would have forced a settlement of the Eastern Strike on terms favorable to working people. That's what happened for the miners in 1902. The kind of fact-finding commission that Roosevelt pioneered, which looked into the meatpacking industry's unsavory history and brought about the Pure Food and Drug Act in 1905, would likely have sunk Lorenzo in 1989. Harry Truman, following his re-election in 1948, paid his debt to organized labor by forcing Ted Baker into a settlement of the National Airlines strike in 1948. Would Tom Dewey, the defeated Republican, have done so? John F. Kennedy appointed the Feinsinger Commission, which investigated the Southern Airways strike of 1960. The result was a victory for ALPA. Would Richard Nixon have done so? In the modern global village of instantaneous communication, public opinion is a powerful tool. The most effective way to mobilize it, historically, has been the kind of fact-finding commission Roosevelt invented, the kind George Bush vetoed. Democratic presidents have typically been willing to use this tool in support of organized labor, while Republicans have not. Roosevelt did not intend it to be that way. In 1902, Roosevelt appointed a commission to study the miners' grievances. The commission met, investigated, and exposed the facts. The heat of public scrutiny, once focused on the mine owners' abuses, was enough. Public opinion did the rest. It was the first great victory for organized labor. 
While not exactly a fan of labor unions, Roosevelt knew the mine owner spokesman, George Baer, was a problem. Much to his surprise, he rather liked the rough-hewn UMW leader, John Mitchell. His rationality and good humor contrasted favorably, in Roosevelt's mind, with the overbearing smugness of Bear. Why didn't George Bush sit down across a table from Frank Lorenzo, with Alpa's Jack Bavis or Skip Copeland and Hank Duffy alongside? Why was Bush unwilling to judge for himself which among these men was the rogue? Why wasn't he like Teddy Roosevelt? In the 1980s, Alpa finally got serious about using the only weapon guaranteed to get the attention of politicians, money. Alpa's leadership, after a fierce internal debate, created Alpapac, the association's political action committee, in November 1975. It was the final vindication of Dave Benke's hard-headed political realism. For all his lack of formal education, Benke grasped the fundamental fact that only political pressure, intelligently applied, could mold events to Alpa's advantage. Benke waged a war against pilots who just couldn't see the connection between politics, money, and Alpa's interests. Benke's vindication began with J.J. O'Donnell's creation of Alpa Pack in 1975 and blossomed with Hank Duffy's cold-eyed use of it in the 1980s. The PAC concept emerged as part of the reform package of campaign financing laws following the Nixon scandals. In addition to Watergate, Nixon and his minions extorted campaign contributions from those who depended upon the favor of the federal government. A series of powerful businessmen would later plead guilty to knowingly violating the law by diverting corporate funds to the 1972 Nixon campaign. Airline executives were particularly vulnerable to this kind of financial mugging. Nixon's attempt to convert the regulatory agencies into political instruments was already well advanced by the time Watergate erupted. When Congress voted on Nixon's impeachment, abuse of power, particularly his corruption of regulatory agencies, was one of the charges that stuck. The PAC reform was designed primarily to permit ordinary people to make their political muscle felt collectively. The reform movement strengthened the prohibition on direct corporate political contributions, a law that had been on the books since the 1920s thanks to Roosevelt's progressive supporters in Congress. Those who wished to voluntarily contribute to a PAC, whether organized by corporations or unions, would be free to do so. By the early 1990s, Alpa PAC was widely acknowledged as one of the most effective and well-financed PACs in Washington. But because of internal conflicts brought on by the emotional republicanism of many pilots, Alpa PAC remained relatively dormant until Hank Duffy energized it in the mid-1980s. Duffy acknowledged in a 1989 interview that pilots had a jaundiced view of the morality of the PAC, of making contributions for favors returned. Duffy noted that while O'Donnell raised about $180,000 per year, he raised about $1.5 million per two-year election cycle. 
acknowledging that it's a great system for ALPA. ALPA pilots were not like the Teamsters, who could affect an election through sheer voting power. ALPA had to influence federal policymaking through contribution power. O'Donnell's reluctance to fully activate ALPA's financial power in politics through the PAC was understandable. Although O'Donnell lined up with Democrats for practical reasons, he was a Republican, and like most pilots, emotionally attached to the conservative view. The hard realities of politics meant that to be effective, ALPA PAC's funds would have to go mostly to Democrats. Confronted with this problem, O'Donnell froze at the controls. By the mid-1980s, as ALPA staggered under the adverse effects of deregulation, recession, and the Lorenzo Wars, taking ALPA into the political thicket via the PAC was not only easier, but politically imperative for Duffy. No clearer evidence can be found of this changing mood than a letter that Republic Airlines MEC Chair Richard Brown sent to Ronald Reagan in 1983. In the letter, Brown wrote that most of the Republic pilot group supported Reagan and the Republican Party with money and time in 1980. But what Mr. Lorenzo was doing to airline employees, while legal under bankruptcy laws, was certainly immoral. Brown mentioned that Reagan, in his 1980 campaign, exhibited pride in having been a union officer for the Screen Actors Guild. To permit his administration to support union-busting, risked losing the few unions that supported him in the past. Duffy later divulged that he thought ALPA had a chance with Bush, who wrote to the ALPA president saying his veto of the Eastern Bill was not aimed at the pilots. He didn't believe that same chance had existed under Reagan. As professional airline pilots began flying the line into the 1990s, a new political awareness emerged. In the summer of 1990, ALPA PAC Steering Committee had a formidable weapon at their disposal, money. Average donations of just over $100 per year by ALPA PAC supporters, who made up slightly more than 20% of ALPA's total membership, put a powerful war chest of nearly $1 million per year at the committee's disposal. While ALPA PAC made contributions purely on a politician's stands, on issues relevant to ALPA and was nonpartisan, Democrats got most of the money because they most often supported ALPA's position. That was the reality of politics. As the 1990s drew to a close, it was time for professional airline pilots to recognize some hard political facts. From the point of view of organized labor, Teddy Roosevelt was the last friendly Republican to occupy the Oval Office. By income, education, and social inclination, pilots are emotional Republicans. But the circumstances of their workplace require them to be practical Democrats. Republican airline pilots should constantly remind their fellow party members that their party has betrayed its historic legacy of fair play for unions. This legacy, which dates from the days of Teddy Roosevelt, has been all but forgotten by Republican presidents since then. Unlike George Bush, who walked away from flying after leaving the military, Roosevelt was fascinated with airplanes. In 1910, 
while on a visit to supporters urging him to enter the 1912 presidential race, Roosevelt visited a commercial air show in St. Louis. While running his hands over the fabric wing surface of a right pusher Model B, Roosevelt wondered aloud what it would be like to fly. Arch Hoxie, the legendary Birdman, acting as the ex-president's host, volunteered to take him aloft. The flight lasted three minutes. Thousands of spectators gasped as Roosevelt, strapped bravely alongside Hoxie, rode this primordial Air Force One skyward. Teddy later said, it was bully. Professional airline pilots were about to rediscover the importance of having a friend in the White House. Frank Lorenzo had plans for the pilots of Continental Airlines that only a president like Teddy Roosevelt could have stopped. Next time on Flying the Line, the events that led to the Continental Strike. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 12, Part 2 of Flying the Line 2 by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 2000. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpha.org or find us on all major podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association International. Production copyright alpha 2023, all rights reserved.